British American Racing was supposed to be an instant Formula One super team. It had huge backing from British American Tobacco, was built from scratch around none other than Jacques Villeneuve, who left Williams one year after winning the championship to become the focal point of this new team. But BAR's first season was a disaster. It failed to score any points, struggled to finish races with a fragile new car, and it was even beaten by Minardi in the championship as it ended its debut year at the very bottom of the F1 pile. So how could something with such high hopes and so much money go so wrong? I'm Glenn Freeman, and to help me uncover the answers here on Bring Back V10s are Ed Straw and Sam Smith. Now, Ed, you love a rubbish F1 team, but BAR wasn't quite the same as the usual minnows you're so fond of. When you think of BAR's first season, what's the first thing that comes to mind? There's actually one very clear memory. I was a student at Warwick University in 99, so it was a short hop over to the Birmingham NEC for Autosport International. So that was in January. And in their live action arena, they had a, a pseudo launch for the BAR team in, in each show. So you had a presentation and a, and a VT. And if memory serves, I think a couple of the cars were lowered from the ceiling on on, on platforms, one in each, each livery, uh, if, if I'm right. I remember being massively impressed and convinced they were going to be great and obviously that was a couple of years before I started my uh, my journalistic career it's safe to say I was a much more naive and easily convinced character then but that does make it very easy to recreate the feelings of that time and the fact that VAR was a huge deal I was far from the only one getting away getting carried away with the the bombast and the hype a little glimpse there into Edgedraw's life before uh, cynicism took over Sam uh, you've done a great interview for this episode with the brilliant designer Adrian Reynard, who was one of the founding partners of the team. And we'll hear clips from that at various points through the episode. But what's the first thing that comes into your head when you think about the subject of BAR and its first season? It's just simply the sight of Jacques Villeneuve either pulling into the pits or parked by the side of the track. It just became so ubiquitous to see him retiring that car in, in most of the races, it seemed. It's seared into my mind. Of, of course, the ludicrous livery probably helps that searing into my mind, even 22 years on. But uh, yeah, the, the, the less than reliable uh, efforts of that season is, is what sticks in my mind. Yeah, and we will... We will definitively i think answer why that car was was so unreliable in a little bit this is the final regular episode of this series so the deadline for getting your questions in for our season finale is now passed but thank you to everyone who tweeted us using the hashtag bring back v10s or used our new email address bring back v10s at the hyphen race.com and of course thank you to everyone who has supported us with a five-star podcast review or by signing up to the race members club to get early access to new ad-free versions of the shows. To find out more about how you can do that and uh, some bonus episodes that will be coming after the series, head to the-race.com forward slash members club. But let's crack on with BAR 1999 because I can already tell from the length of the script we've written that this is going to be a huge episode. So make sure you're comfortable. We're going to start by interrogating one of the biggest legends or perhaps myths about BAR. And that's the belief that they declared they were going to win their first race. This was a legacy of Reynard cars winning first time out in every category they entered. So with Reynard running the technical side of BAR, the question was asked if this tradition could be continued. So the claim that BAR would indeed win first time out is constantly attached to Adrian Reynard himself. So did he actually say it? 
sort of. At the announcement of the team in December 1997, Reynard was asked about this record his cars had, and his response was, we will aim to put the car on pole position and win the first race. Before we discuss this a bit further, let's hear for the first time from Sam's interview with Reynard himself. So here's some background on the formation of the team and the way it was hyped up. When we did the deal with British American Tobacco, the original deal was going to be called the Reynard Formula One team. And that carried on for several months. Um, and all sorts of publicity was generated by the BAT machine. And of course, then BAT, for their wisdom, decided to call the team BAR, which really aggravated me. Um, because I, you know, I spent my life with the name on the door, and that was a further incentive. But by that time, the publicity machine was got going. There were interviews with the press, and uh, of course, Craig was happy to hype it up. That what we'd done in the past, and we sort of all got tied up in that terrible. <laughs> advanced publicity so to some extent it was you know we we, we did have a tradition of uh, producing great cars in production race cars but of course by the time it got to BAR there was actually no tradition there at all we'd bought a team everyone in the team just about was new there was a few carryover people from Renard um and it all got a bit confusing but we were you know what publicity is like and you know what journalists like to do so that's where we were trapped <laughs> <laughs> all sorts has been said about these claims over the years uh, ron meadows who helped set the factory up and is still there with mercedes today takes a sympathetic view he said on a special episode of the f1 beyond the grid podcast I think Adrian was asked the question, where do you want to be or what's your ambition? And he said, we'd like to try to win in our first season. And someone took that as him saying he was going to win his first race. On that same episode, his now Mercedes colleague, Andrew Shovlin, who was also at BAR in 1999, said he'd come straight out of university and he believed they were going to do it and that it was quite a shock when he learned how tough F1 really was. Uh, Robert Singh, who was team manager at the beginning, said recently that it was unfortunate that Reynard's comment was taken in the wrong context. He said what Adrian was trying to say was that we are going in with the intention of trying to achieve that. He never said we were going to achieve that and it got taken in the wrong context and portrayed BAR as being a very arrogant startup. So Ed, is it unfortunate that for all he's achieved in motorsport, in F1 circles, when most people think of Adrian Reynard, they think of this comment that actually he didn't quite say. Yeah, it is a shame and not just because it wasn't quite as he presented it, although I think using the word win in, in any sentence about a first year F1 team is is risky. But Reynard <laughs> was hugely successful, wasn't it? Became the dominant force in IndyCar shortly after it came in in 94. It had been the dominant force in F3000, successful in Formula 3, Formula Ford, Formula Atlantic, Nippon, you name it, Reynard succeeded in it. And Adrian Reynard did pretty much conquer the race car manufacturing world for a period, but 
yeah, Formula One was the undiscovered country, but also that logical step. You could maybe say that his foray into Formula One came too late. I think maybe a decade or so earlier would have been ideal, and that would have been kind of picking up from when Reynard was massively on, on, on top of the world. Probably what he needed was a strong commercial partner to work directly with him, kind of a proper partnership, the Williams mould, Frank Williams to his Patrick Head, if you like, for Reynard to have cracked it. But we shouldn't remember that for a period, Reynard was absolutely the race car manufacturer in the world. We'll try not to upset Sam there with any comparisons to Lola, but this isn't to say that BAR itself didn't buy into this hype as its debut drew closer. By the time the team launched its car, in 1999, in January, as Ed mentioned earlier, Reynard was one of the more reserved senior members of the team. By now, the whole win our first race prediction had been around for 13 months and had taken on a life of its own. So it was a huge talking point at the car launch and everyone was asked about it. Speaking at the car's first test in December 1998, Villeneuve had said F1 was going to be a lot more difficult than the other series Reynard had won in straight away. And he said, we should be happy with a much smaller result than that. But just a few weeks later at the launch, Villeneuve was saying, we can definitely be up there challenging for race wins from the start of the season. We'll definitely go to the first race thinking we have a small chance of winning. Pollock said, we intend to go out and challenge for the championship. Reynard and chief designer Malcolm Osler tried to hold back a bit more. Uh, Osler, who was really the man responsible for the design of the car, said, the objective for every race has to be to win. And Reynard said, it's going to be tough, but that does not mean we are not going to try to do it. Villeneuve said years later in a brilliant interview with Morris Hamilton for F1 Racing magazine in 2014, that it was a mistake to talk about winning the first race. And he admitted that the more it went on, the more he started believing it. Pollock hasn't done many interviews about BAR, which isn't a huge surprise, but when he was trying to get his own F1 engine company off the ground in 2011, he got asked the occasional question about it in interviews then. And he said, we didn't think it would happen in the first year, but we did seriously believe we could achieve results in two or three years. So Sam, where do we end up on this debut win stuff? Did the team's major players say enough to justify the criticism they still get to this day about it? Or has it all been overplayed? Well, it, it just seemed like a lot of mixed messaging, didn't it? That there was no consistency in what was coming out of this new team through the senior people within it. It's all very well having ambition and being a bit brash if you if you know that there's a good chance you can back that up. But I think what was happening here was that there was some decent-sized egos, let's say. Not uncommon in motorsport, of course, but they were there and they were just not managed properly. Then when you add a few agencies or marketing buzzword merchants into the mix and the inexperience, and they may be inexperienced in motorsport, then you've got a recipe for a bit of a PR disaster, whether it's then or now, because we're still talking about it now, right? So Pollock was clearly an ambitious individual. I'm sure he would have loved the attention that this sort of thing brought. Or perhaps he maybe did it intentionally anyway. Who knows? Counterintuitively, it was it was designed to actually probably take the limelight away from the team's real issues, which I think were were became clear in the first few races in terms of the fact that they had a, a reasonable car, but one that was very very brittle. Actually, if it had got points and perhaps a podium in their maiden season, I think it would have all been forgotten about. But the fact that they came away with nil points uh, just gives everyone a 
a massive stick for which to to beat them with um so i think ultimately it just became a, a sort of uh, a self-defeating prophecy and, and, and that was all it was now as if all that nonsense wasn't creating enough raised eyebrows in bar's direction the team caused a huge stir by launching its cars in two different liveries a red and white one for villeneuve and a blue and yellow one for ricardo zonta this was banned in F1, although a rule had only been officially introduced in late 1998 when the FIA got wind of BAR's plans to represent a different tobacco brand on each car. Up to that point, the teams had agreed since the early 90s to run cars in the same liveries to make F1 look as professional as possible. But Pollock challenged that rule and the team took the matter to arbitration with the FIA. Pollock said, we have tried to explore every avenue to resolve the matter. The FIA didn't give us any other option. We've tried to compromise, but we have to defend our situation. If I want to put two or three cigarette or beer companies on my car, why shouldn't I be able to do that? I don't intend to come in and run a team and just step back on the first day. If I don't fight for my commercial rights, then I won't be able to pay my staff. It's the only way we can finance the team. We are paid by sponsors and we have to protect them. So, Ed, you talked about seeing these cars launched uh, in, in January and in the, in the way they kept repeating it at the Autosport show. So what did you think of this attempt to run two cars in completely different liveries? Yeah, I don't blame them for trying and I don't blame them for fighting their corner. That, that regulation, which continues today demanding both cars are in the same livery, was introduced for a valid reason because we've talked about this on other episodes, the rising professionalism of F1, particularly going through the late 80s and early 90s. You wanted consistent visuals across the two cars rather than risking chopping and changing with ad hoc deals. But it's a little bit different when you have a big company that has a multitude of brands and also that's effectively advertising globally and might have different brands available in different regions. So you have to ask why that's not allowed, particularly when you've got a company like like BAT that, that was in that, that position. Maybe even it would have been better for F1 if that had been the case because certainly as time went on, sponsorship became a little bit harder to find. So maybe it'd be easier to sell one car than two. But I think what is also clear is there is a question of how you approach these things as well. This rule had been in place for a while, and it does seem that that the BAR and, and Craig Pollock approach on this was somewhat antagonistic, and certainly launching cars with a livery and not kind of making sure you were the first ones to to raise it and it being found out third hand is not necessarily the way to go about getting your way. Yeah, and I think it has to be said from from all of the research I read and the coverage at the time, I'd always wondered if this was a PR stunt and they were never intending to do it. But the more I looked into it, I really do think that they kind of sold the whole dream to BAT on the idea that they could have a fully branded car in two different cigarette companies. So, yeah, unfortunate, really. And this didn't go away immediately because the move went down badly with the FIA, which was even more annoyed that BAR launched uh, the two liveries on its cars and went to the European Commission over the issue, all while the arbitration case was still ongoing. Not only did the did BAR lose the arbitration case, but it was then summoned to the World Motorsport Council. FIA President Max Mosley said BAR's, BAR's actions were sticking two fingers up at the FIA and the whole Formula One establishment. And he said that BAR's behavior was outside the spirit, if not the letter of the Concord Agreement. BAR eventually relented to keep itself out of further trouble and started the season with the split livery showing the red and white colours on one side and the blue and yellow on the other with a zip down the middle. 
Ahead of the World Motorsport Council hearing, it withdrew its complaint to the European Commission. And at the hearing, Pollock said that complaint had been lodged by lawyers on the BAT side acting without his instruction. The FIA gave Pollock 14 days to back those claims up in writing to bring the matter to a close. Pollock said, A lot has been driven by my partner BAT. I've been treated as arrogant and ignorant, but I'll always protect them and defend their rights. We're pleased the matter is now concluded and I have apologised for any misunderstanding over our actions. Sam, with the way the FIA came down quite hard on, on BAR here, do you think the team, or maybe BAT itself, needed to be nudged back into line by the authorities nice and early on here? Probably, yeah. I think I think we see this with new teams in some form or fashion anyway, don't we? I, I mean, in a sense, Jordan had it a little bit in 91 in a sporting sense with, with pre-qualifying and being on the breadline throughout that season. And then Toyota too in 2002, which we um, discussed in the previous series with their angles over the, the delayed entry and so forth. It, it just happened to be a bit more visceral with BAR and the livery, which was... I, ultimately quite a peripheral matter I thought in in the context of where things were with that team and, and where Formula 1 was in 99 there were clearly better ways of going about it uh, what, uh, what they wanted to achieve and it, it just seems that they didn't do their research or their sort of due diligence on what was possible or achievable in, in Formula 1 in that context one thing the FIA and other teams do not like is a brash and antagonistic newcomer shaking up Formula 1 it's fine if you have a stellar or even a solid opening season or opening few races and pay your dues like Jordan did in 91 or maybe Sauber did in 93 in a, in a quiet manner but BAR just didn't have that quiet manner did they and um that sort of slight touch of arrogance, which, which I think just rubbed people up the wrong way. It was probably nothing more than that. And, and, and having a very decent budget as well, a load of ambition that, that triggered some people and, and perhaps the FIA a little bit. So that when an opportunity arose, the FIA were, were ready and, and, and waiting for them. And, and I think this was obviously the, uh, the prime example. And don't get outside bodies like the European Commission involved. You always pay for that in F1, particularly the way it was run then. That will really not work for you. Good advice, particularly when Max Mosley was in charge. So a big question was, why would Villeneuve, just a year on from winning the World Championship, choose to join a team that was starting from scratch? Villeneuve has had to answer that question several times over the years. And one of the best answers he gave was a few years ago on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast with Tom Clarkson, which were always enjoying uh, citing here on Bring Back V10s. Villeneuve said of, of going to BAR, it was the next challenge. I still had plenty of years ahead of me, so it was okay to have two or three difficult years building it up. There was this great opportunity, big sponsor willing to put the cards on the table to build a potentially winning team. And that team is now Mercedes and is destroying records. So you can't tell me it was a bad plan. Williams was an established team. You already enter a strong family, and you try to move it along in your direction. When we started BAR, it was to recreate this, but to start from scratch. So the whole team was built around what we needed to go and win. Ed, at the time, how big a gamble did this seem to be for Villeneuve? And does his logic, as he's mapped it out there, make sense? Yeah, you have to, as you say, really place yourself at the time and separate the hindsight from uh, evaluating this. But even if you do that and accept that there are a lot of positives about BAR and the fact that Williams, which of course he walked away from, was in a, a difficult interregnum between its Renault and BMW powered years, it was still 
effectively a startup team despite having acquired Tyrrell to get in. So while the funding was there, the facilities were good, the people were good, it's still a huge gamble. It's quite revealing. Villeneuve said some strange things about it because he's talked about the fact he may have gone to McLaren if the timing of a phone call had been a little bit differently, which which sounds a little bit odd. But Villeneuve does say a lot of different things at a lot of, uh, of, of different times. But given Villeneuve was a recent world champion at the time when F1 didn't have that many proven gold standard drivers... And this was also his big move because he's come into Formula One. He's won the world championship. And normally you'd think that move away from your first breakthrough will be the one that gets you the big bucks and your pick of the team. So he parlayed a great position into something that ultimately didn't work. There also seems to be some loyalty to Craig Pollock there as part of the equation. With what followed, I'd imagine that would be something maybe Jack regrets. But I should add, he's recently said he doesn't regret it at all. So what do I know? Yeah, he was certainly loyal to Pollock at this point. And in terms of um, mistaken loyalty to Craig, which we won't get into too much here, he says the mistake was staying loyal to Craig when uh, when David Richards took over the team and Pollock was ousted. But that's a story for another time. Ed mentioned there uh, talk of a phone call from McLaren. Let's get into that because Jack claims that BAR might never have happened at all had Adrian Newey called him at a different time on the day that Adrian told him McLaren were interested in Jack for 1999. Villeneuve told this story on Beyond the Grid. He said, just before doing the team, I got a call from Adrian Newey saying, don't do the team because we want you here in McLaren. But when he called me, I was sitting in front of Craig. Had Adrian called me an hour later or two hours earlier, then I could have had an open discussion with him. And the chances are I probably would have gone with McLaren. But with Craig sitting in front of me, I couldn't get into the conversation, so I cut it short and that was it. The team was only built if there was a world champion being part of it, so either we moved forward with it or there was no team. I know that sounds bad because that could have meant more championships, but you never know. And my relationship with Ron Dennis was always a little bit tense, so it could have been complicated. I think that's an understatement. Ed, I'm not going to ask if Villeneuve should have chosen McLaren over BAR, because I think that's obvious. But let's imagine that he did go there for 1999. How would it have gone? Well, he'd certainly have scored a few points, so that would have been uh, something. <laughs> and I'm sure he'd have picked up uh, at, least a, at least a race win. It would have been very difficult going into a team where Mika Hakkinen was at his zenith. I don't see Villeneuve being a great fit for a Ron Dennis team, but he would have been quick because he's a quick driver, although I'm not convinced that alliance would have lasted a huge amount of, of time. What would have been interesting to see is if Villeneuve could have hit the ground running at that point at the start of the season where Hakkinen was struggling a bit to pick himself up for another title push at the start of 1999. Hakkinen's talked about how difficult it was to kind of start from zero again. So maybe if Villeneuve had made a strong, a strong start, it could have changed the dynamic, but we know how popular Hakkinen was there. What it undoubtedly would have done is change the whole course of Villeneuve's F1 career. I suspect even if the McLaren thing hadn't quite worked in terms of it not being a good fit, it would have preserved the value of Villeneuve as a driving commodity in Formula, in Formula 1 for a bit longer. So maybe it would have meant that the next move he made would have been a, a more positive one for him. And how delicious it would have been to have a Villeneuve in a McLaren, what, 16 years after it it should have happened in 1983. Um such uh yeah that would have been a fairly fairly evocative story if it had happened well they should have just put him out in a mclaren m23 that would have been, <laughs> that would have been the fun thing to do reynard had made its name elsewhere as we've already discussed but adrian reynard had been keen on f1 
for a long time and had most famously tried very hard to get a team going in the early 1990s. Speaking in January 1999, Reynard's right-hand man Rick Gorn had explained why that project didn't go anywhere. He said, in 1991, it was Adrian's baby. We did it the wrong way. Rory Byrne became available, so we got a technical team together and we went out to design a state-of-the-art car, which became the Benetton B192. And we'll explain uh, what that's all about in a moment. Uh, but Gorn went on to say, but we didn't have the funding and it failed. You learn by your mistakes. This time we are part of a very powerful joint venture with BAT and with Craig. F1 is the one thing we've left to do. Ed, I know you're quite keen on this early 90s Reynard car and its its journey to becoming a Benetton. So tell us a bit about how all of that unraveled for Reynard and how it kind of became a stepping stone for Benetton's championship success in the 90s. Yeah, it's one of those great what-if projects in F1 history. Obviously, Reynard F1 team didn't happen, but that group they assembled to do the design work was small, but very, very well accomplished. Rory Byrne, who was a key part, of course, of Ferrari's domination of F1 in the Schumacher years. Pat Simmons, obviously all the Benetton connections there are, are starting to show up for people. The plan had been to come in in 92, I think, with the Yamaha-powered car, but obviously it didn't work. Crucially, Byrne and Simmons were also directors of the Reynard Project Company, and I believe they still held the intellectual property of the design work that that they did. So they were able to to go to go to Benetton and take that with them. Not just some really clever des- aero design work, but also really cutting edge vehicle dynamics efforts have been put into that as well. So it was a it was a really cutting edge technological bit of work that was, that was done here. It's just it didn't have all the other bits needed for a team. They went back to Benetton. As you mentioned, that became the Benetton B192. Michael Schumacher got his first F1 winner. Spa there, that familiar high nose uh, concept of that car. Obviously, they didn't originate that, but they did push it to greater extremes than others had done. So that's there for that lineage of Benettons and takes us through to the, the 94 and 95 title-winning Benettons. And as a footnote, I'm obliged to add the 94 Pacific was also the Reynard design, but effectively the undeveloped original version. I think they got that design through Reynard, who also had the rights to the design. So in 94, you had Benetton winning the championship at the front of the grid, and then you also had the same DNA, but just a little bit less evolved at the back of the grid, or at least at the back of the grid on the few times where the Pacific qualified, which I absolutely love. I knew that mention was coming. I knew I wouldn't have to prompt you for that. Uh, During winter testing, the BAR didn't look slow, but it was clearly unreliable. The car would be horribly unreliable all season and everyone involved in a project gives the same reason for that, which was the Supertech V10 engine. F1 did an episode of its exclusive Spotify series on the edge about BAR's nightmare spa weekend in 99, which we'll come back to later. And in that, team manager Robert Singh said the engine had a very severe vibration issue, which no one realized when the car was being designed. Something would break because of the vibration from the engine. We'd fit a different part and it would be fine. And at the next race, something else would break because of the vibration. This went on pretty much all year. We rarely had the same problem twice, but it just seemed to endlessly be something else. On that point about the designers not being aware of the vibration issues, Adrian Reynard told Sam in their chat that BAR had built up a test mule in 1998 from a Tyrrell, but the Cosworth engine in that car didn't have the same vibration issues. So, that, so that's why the team weren't prepared for it. 
Speaking in that F1 racing interview in 2014, Villeneuve said, the car was quick but lethal. It was marginal. In every race, I was waiting for something to break and you can't go racing like that. So Sam, is it just an unfortunate coincidence that the team had an engine that vibrated too much or should they have built in a bit more margin uh, into the car for that first season and just made it more robust? Well, yeah, a, a more robust car would have got solid results or, or better results, that's for sure. The, the vibration issues were chronicled throughout the season as far as I can remember and can see through through a bit of a, a, a delve into uh, 99. It did appear to be primary reason as to why the reliability was so poor the decision to go with the super tech engine was was entirely pragmatic from the team and obviously it was a, a stopgap to what they hoped for would be a manufacturer deal and what subsequently became obviously honda later on but what it did was invite itself into a mini battle with benetton and williams who themselves they did have some similar problems uh, with with a slightly less seemingly less devastating vibration issue early in the season but they seem to get on top of that to some extent the problem actually really seemed to be that as Renault developed the engine throughout the year the vibrations for BAR at least seemed to get worse in relation to the hardware on their car so a curious one consistency in testing was certainly never there, as you mentioned, Glenn. And, and because of that, the issues were just so widespread. I mean, you look at the retirements during the year for just for Villeneuve, wishbones, clutch plates, gearbox, hydraulics, drive shafts, you name it. I mean, that cannot be, surely all of those cannot be because of an engine um, an engine vibration. You know, I don't know, but it seems um, it seems unlikely. Perhaps it contributed to, to some of these things happening. Uh, and maybe it was a bit unlucky, but more likely is that there was just general brittleness in, in the in the cars. And perhaps that was just a legacy of the factory not being completely on stream yet. So things like the quality control departments, which are so crucial, and were then kind of evolving um, more and more in Formula One, were, were just not ready. And the supply chain was not as solid as it should be for a new project. Whatever it was, it was pretty fundamental. And, and looking at it now, it was probably a combination of the the super tech shakes and uh the the bar's mistakes and uh, oh that, uh, yeah that that rhymed it wasn't meant to but <laughs> you know what i mean there were those two there were those two aspects that contributed to the uh to the unreliability i think yeah the the other theory i've seen is that um with so many with Reynard recruiting so many people with f3000 and an indycar experience maybe the the kind of loads and forces that go through parts in f1 weren't quite thought about, but everybody who's spoken about this is very consistent about how, how much, how, uh, the mech, the, 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 the super tech shakes, I think you just called it. So we'll go with that. Vibrations were to blame when Villeneuve crashed out of eighth place with a rear wing failure in the team's first race in Australia. Uh, Villeneuve had qualified 11th, but he felt he should have been in a top six on the grid with a cleaner qualifying session. Zonta ran as high as fifth before being brought in for precautionary checks after Villeneuve's wing failure, and he eventually retired with gearbox problems. In Brazil, Villeneuve leaving the track early after a disrupted Friday and skipping his own birthday party with the team was quickly overshadowed when Zonta had a nasty crash on Saturday morning with a 100-mile-per-hour side-on impact against an unprotected Armco barrier. Zonta suffered cut tendons and a chipped bone in his left foot in the crash. And F1 doctor Sid Watkins reckoned that the cockpit head protection saved Zonta's life, 
or at the very least, major head injuries. Mikasalo was called up to fill in for Zonta for a few races after Arrows had ditched Salo on the eve of the season. In recent interviews, Salo has said he was called pretty quickly as he was close to Villeneuve and Pollock. But in an Autosport interview in 1999, he said he'd been sat at home expecting the call after he saw the crash. And when he hadn't heard anything by the Tuesday after the race, he called Pollock to find out what was going on. Salo claims he never even went to the team's factory because he had a seat fitting at a Hereth test uh, where he instantly went quicker than Villeneuve. Sam, this, of course, wasn't Salo's most famous stand-in role of 99, which we'll come back to in another episode. But would BAR perhaps fortunate that a driver of his experience was sitting on the sidelines ready to step in as they were going through such a brutal baptism in F1? Well, it probably helped to have someone of Salo's skills in the cockpit. And at that stage, from an experience point of view too, he'd been involved in some pretty tough projects that initially were Lotus and then Tyrrell and Arrows the previous season. So he knew how to dig out results and, and, and work for results. He also knew and got on well with Villeneuve, who was a, a former ally in, in Japan during Villeneuve's F3 season in 1992. So they that helped things get along, I'm sure. So there was an element of plugging and play there for, for the team. A settled period with someone like Salo to stand in for was, I think, ideal in the in the circumstances ultimately he did a pretty solid job and he got an eighth place in Barcelona but he, he was a lap and a half down from the leader on that occasion and and generally apart from that first test you know he was he was a, a fair chunk off Villeneuve in qualifying at Barcelona so he was an obvious choice uh to plug the gap temporarily and perhaps with hindsight might have achieved more than Zonta over a season but actually, you know, as, as you mentioned, he had uh, he, he went on to have bigger fish to fry a few months later with Ferrari. Key question is, what could Ricardo Rosset have achieved in that car if he was given the chance? The obvious choice. I guess we should have expected that. Um, you're getting your Ricardos mixed up, Ed. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not doing that now. Uh, Rosset in a, in a BAR. They had a hard enough time as it was. You want to put Rosset in the car as well. Um, but let, let's find some good news, uh, shall we? Briefly, at least. Uh, things seemed to be going a bit better next time out at Imola when Villeneuve qualified fifth. However, on race day, uh, a gearbox problem meant he couldn't even get the car off the line. And at the start of this episode, if I was doing uh, what's what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of uh, of this story, this would have been mine. Because when, when he qualified fifth, I thought, right, here we go. This car is good. Uh, Villeneuve still still got the hunger, still got the fire. This is where the season's going to take off. And then the car couldn't even take off. So I think that was when I started to, to lose faith. Next time out in Monaco, Villeneuve was pleased to be the top super tech runner ahead of those Williamses and Benettons that Sam mentioned earlier. He was eighth on the grid, but both cars again retired. Then in Spain, Villeneuve jumped from sixth to third at the start, where he ran until the first stops when both Ferraris jumped him. But he was still fifth and came in slightly early for his second stop to check one of the rear wing flaps. And then when he tried to pull away, the gearbox failed again. Villeneuve said on that F1 On The Edge podcast, I was thinking this is the one where everything will go right. We're running at the front and this time the car won't break. But it did. Salo at least got the team's first finish here, even if it was outside the points. And with Zonta due back, Salo said he was pushing to do more testing for BAR and chasing a drive for the following season with them. So Ed, we have at least got 
some flashes of promise there, some some speed from the car, some you know running towards the sharp end. Did that show that ultimately this wasn't a terrible F1 car? If you can run that competitively at Barcelona, which is a very aero-dependent circuit, you have fundamentally got a pretty decent racing car performance-wise, especially if you're down on power, which of course they were. In that run of races after the first two, which we'll, we'll kind of give them as a uh, as as their uh, as their freebies at the start, the qualifying pace got pretty impressive. I think they were one point one percent off in San Marino, one point six percent off in Monaco, three quarters of a percent off in Spain. A brand new team is an absolute dream world if they can achieve that sort of performance in their third, fourth, and fifth races. But of course, performance is only one part of the equation. Sam's talked about the the reliability and the the super take the super tech shakes. So those reliability problems also do impact the performance and the way you you develop your performance as well. But over the whole season, I think the average performance deficit was one point eight percent, sixth fastest car on average, just behind Williams with the same engine. Ed Benetton, two teams that had recently won world championships, and in that kind of super tech class that, that Sam referenced, San Marino, Monaco, and Spain, BAR were the quickest. But of course. BAR had made a rod for their own back with ludicrous failures of expectation management. So they weren't judged as a new team doing something pretty remarkable. They were judged as a team that should have been at the front underachieving. And also on that on that new team thing, we still see it today. People say, well, BAR wasn't a new team. It wasn't a startup because it was, it was Tyrrell. They bought Tyrrell's entry and then they started really from, from scratch. So this was a brand new team. There was quite a lot going on off track for BAR around the time of these races as well. Firstly, the good news. After Honda evaluated launching its own F1 team and even ran a test car in early 1999, which you can hear all about in a dedicated episode we've done previously, it eventually decided against doing the whole thing itself and would join BAR as a works engine partner for 2000 instead. At the time, Pollock said, Our deal with Honda is more than just a supply of engines. They will be involved in chassis development and anything else they can help us with, they will. That's why so many other teams were after this deal. I think Honda chose us because we are a new team and we have an open philosophy. We are a very clean operation. I feel privileged that Honda has shown every confidence in us. Concluding a works engine deal is something that new teams rarely do, but that was my aim at the start of the year. So Ed, how how impressive was it for BAR to land this deal, especially so early in what was turning out to be a troubled debut season? Yeah, hugely impressive. Uh, a manufacturer engine deal is the thing every team wanted and in fact needed, particularly at a time when F1 was very much about to get into a peak of one of its most manufacturer-dominated eras. And it wasn't a second-tier engine manufacturer, you know, a Yamaha or a Lamborghini or something like that. This was Honda, less than a decade ago. They were winning championships uh, with McLaren still. So this was a big deal. And even though the start had been shaky for the team, it it was again a reminder that BAR was destined seemingly for, for big things. Plus, huge financial benefit as well, because they weren't having to shell out, shell out 16 million or whatever it was, pounds a year, for the for the super tech engines that weren't actually that competitive compared to the uh, the standard setters in F1. So a great deal. I love that you went from, uh, from top line manufacturers to Yamaha and Lamborghini as if there's no middle ground in F1 engine history. But also, Ed, clearly Honda likes the idea of, of a new team that it could have more influence over. But from Honda's perspective, was it a risk to go with a team that was 
clearly unproven at this stage. Yeah, it was a risk, although they did have what you might call the fallback position because there was the Mugen Honda engine supply at Jordan as well. So there, there was some Honda involvement there also. So this was more about just trying to get a team that they could feel was, was their own. Obviously, down the line, it would be literally Honda's own team. But they wanted influence. The idea was great on paper because the closer the collaboration between the team and the engine manufacturer, the better the package can be, provided that collaboration is constructive. But BAR, as we've talked about, had so many problems of its own to solve. It was still building up all its working practices, processes, structures, troubleshooting. So Honda perhaps ignored the benefits you get from being with a, an established team, even if it means you lose out a little bit in terms of them not being so malleable. So yeah, a risk for Honda. I can see why they why they went for it. And obviously they wanted something a little bit different to what they'd had in the past with a with a big team. And we could look forward fifteen odd years and say going with an established team doesn't always guarantee you success either. So yeah, you can look at it both ways. Another key part of the Honda deal was that BAR would no longer be paying for its engines, as Ed mentioned there. And this was handy because it also emerged around this time that BAR was looking for additional sponsorship as the team had overspent in its first season. BAT's Director of Global Sponsorship, Tom Moser, said, it's true they are out there looking for partners, but it's not because of overspending, it's the cost of doing business. If we don't acquire new sponsors, then there will have to be some analyses to what's necessary to ensure the team has the short-term funding to compete at that level. Pollock added, modern Formula One is very expensive and we are still looking out for more sponsorship. We do need it. This is our first year in the sport and it is the most costly. And we will hear from Adrian Reynard to get his thoughts on the team's overspending in a bit as well. So, Sam, we're not even halfway through 1999 yet. We're basically into May. Well, we're at the end of May. BAR has got in trouble with the FIA, put a target on its back with bold predictions. Its car can barely make it to the end of a race. And now it turns out its already massive budget isn't big enough. Could much more have gone wrong in this in the first few months of this new F1 team? I think it just raises the question again of underestimating what they were doing. By 1999, Formula One was about to enter the big era of manufacturer input into it. And the economy was very buoyant and it was expanding massively. And there was a general air of of brashness, if you like, which fitted into the way that BAR seemed to go about their business. But they, they, they still had some very strong roots. They had a healthy budget, or rather they thought they did. They had a world champion, a strong technical team, etc., and, and decent lead times. But that isn't enough in backing up the bold statements and, and just the general air of expectation for a new, fresh F1 team. I think having spent a lot of time around big German OEMs in, in WEC and Formula E myself over the last decade or so, one thing that has always struck me is that those guys, uh, th those teams get, in terms of their modesty and humbleness in in, in drilling into a programme, that, that sort of is, is ubiquitous. That is the way that they go racing. And I think even in F1 with Toyota, a few years after BAR came in, the Ove Anderson era of Toyota had that same pragmatic and kind of you know kind of graceful way of going about it despite it being very well financed and the likes of Porsche Audi and Mercedes have done that to a large extent in their racing programs 
I think. So there's a cultural thing going on here. And I think it's a it's a decent way to go about your business uh, from that perspective, if you are a, a big, big name or you have these big constituent parts. So in terms of things going wrong, I don't think BAR can blame anyone else but themselves for, for this debut season, really, because although on track there was promise and the car was clearly decent on pace off it there were just so many problems and they 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 always come and bubble to the surface pretty quickly the Toyota comparison is really interesting actually because one of the questions we kept putting to Alan McNish when you and I were on that episode with him was actually if Toyota uh, were underplaying their ambitions too much so maybe they went the other way Uh, back on track things didn't get any better at Villeneuve's home race in Canada where he joined Damon Hill and Michael Schumacher in crashing at the final chicane in a race where we first uh, heard the term wall of champions. Although an often forgotten fact is that Zonta was the first driver to crash there in that race when he lost it on a safety car restart early on. At the French Grand Prix, tension behind the scenes blew up in public when Villeneuve and Pollock both started pointing fingers at Reynard. Villeneuve said of Reynard, we've hardly ever seen him. That's probably the department of the team that's been left behind a little bit. Adrian's role in the team is a little bit like Patrick Head's role. Patrick is very hands-on and follows what's going on. Adrian's got a lot of experience and his experience would have been useful. We've seen him for two days of testing this year and that's it. There is definitely a little bit of frustration on that issue. You'd want the chance to put someone in there that will do the job. Pollock added... We've always been aware that Adrian would be a part-time player for BAR. We've made it very clear at our recent board meetings that we fully believe top management of the company needs to give 100%. Adrian has many companies and interests, and we feel he should prioritise them. At the following race at Silverstone, Reynard responded to those comments, saying he was surprised at being slagged off by Villeneuve. And he added, I have my wife, five kids, other companies, and Jacques Villeneuve. I guess I prioritised them in that order and he didn't like that. But why wasn't Reynard more involved and what did he make of the tension behind the scenes and all this talk we mentioned earlier of overspending? Let's hear it from the man himself again from his interview with Sam and how the initial decision to take Reynard out of the team name had had an effect on his motivation. Do you know, I don't really know why they changed it. Um, they had a perfectly good heritage there, which they could have adopted. And I, I would have thought that the Reynard name would have been a much better name. I mean, we, we talked about British-American Reynard um, as being an appropriate name. I just don't know, but it was a really bad move as far as I was concerned. And almost from that day on, it knocked my enthusiasm down from 110% to below that level. And from that stage, I think my, uh, my heart wasn't in it. I think it's been well publicised that Craig and I fell out from differences of opinion and the way things were going and the blame culture. So I think Jacques was bound to listen to Craig as his advisor and so that tainted the relationship a bit in terms of jack i mean he he performed you know very well um there was obviously disappointments i mean in any in any team which is underperforming 
everyone looks at everybody. It's, in other words, it's healthy and unhealthy to to look at everyone. Now, in in the Renard days, we had a what we called a no blame culture, um, and that worked very well. But BAR didn't it didn't inherit all the culture that we'd managed to grow over the previous 20 years at Reynard. So it began to get a bit political and people were pointing at each other. Um, when I started to get the criticism for an underperforming car and being over budget in the engineering department, and when I saw all these lavish motorhomes and the jets and the expenses being paid, it's pretty difficult to, you know, to accept that you're not doing your best. Sam, there's there's quite a lot that Adrian said to you there that we can get into. What did you make of how this all blew up and how it came out in the open between Pollock, Villeneuve and Reynard, three people who were supposed to be pillars of this new team? Well, we, we talked a little bit about egos, didn't we, before? And um, clearly Pollock had an impressively sized one, let's put it that way. But then again, this was largely his brainchild. And it went back to that initial 1994 post-Road America debut win for Villeneuve when he met with Adrian and with Rick Gaunt, um, the, the commercial manager of, of Reynard and, and Adrian's partner. Um, the, the plan was tentatively hatched then. Perhaps this gave Pollock some kind of license, I guess, to make, some decisions of this ilk who knows uh, but ultimately the Pollock and Villeneuve axis was strong and potent enough to to usually win out in the in the sort of intra-team politics M- make no mistake too that Villeneuve's ego was substantial at this point you know he had the peripheral image as this laid-back grungy kid and you know I'm sure that was part of his is part of his personality but he he was also a player I mean without any shadow of a doubt uh, and he was enormously influenced by Pollock as two in that era and he'd been his mentor or you know if you want to if you want to get personal about it a kind of uh, surrogate father father figure really in his school days so that relationship ran pretty deep and the fact that it all became quite public in terms of the team didn't do anyone I'm sure any favors and it just probably ended up taking away resources and focus from what mattered which was getting results on the track and, and trying to make the car reliable so ultimately you have to say it was probably counterproductive but I think with the the mix of egos that we had in that in that quite small uh, part of part of Formula One there was always going to be fireworks and, and so it proved. The politics within the team weren't about to go away uh, as over the following weeks rumours emerged that Pollock's position would be under threat in early 2000 if the team hadn't improved by then. BAT publicly backed Pollock, saying there were no questions about his ability. And Pollock said, within BAR, a lot of heads would fall before mine. I feel 100% confident in my position. Villeneuve retired from the Austrian Grand Prix with a broken drive shaft while running sixth, then crashed out of the start in Germany, and then clutch failure put him out of the Hungarian Grand Prix, where BAR brought a major update package featuring a new front wing, side pods and diffuser. Villeneuve then cast doubt on his own future after all of that, saying, I want to achieve my goals with BAR, but if they don't have a sufficient, if they don't achieve a sufficient level to make progress and become champions, I would leave. And even Pollock briefly let his guard down at this point, saying, I sometimes wonder if I was right to set the team up. 
I won't want to keep Jacques at the end of next year if we are not moving forward. Villeneuve said in his 2014 interview of F1 Racing that he felt he was driving better than he had in 1997 when he won the World Championship. And he said, I could take the lack of results because I knew how hard I'd been working. There wasn't one moment when I gave up. But the lack of comprehension outside the team about what was really going on was more difficult to take. So, Ed, Villeneuve still hadn't finished a race by this point in 1999. In the circumstances, how well do you think he was performing in the car? Yeah, he was he's performing very well. The car was showing decent paces, uh, as we talked about earlier. With the caveat that he was obviously very much number one, he was always the quicker driver, whether he was alongside Zonta or Salo, and had the car held together, he would have picked up a, a smattering of, of points. There were certainly signs of frustration, and maybe occasionally that manifests itself in the car, but I, I don't think we can say that he was you know ragging the car and breaking it we've talked about all the reasons why it was unreliable i don't think that was that was his problem so the amount of times he was sticking that car in the top 10 on on the grid and the positions he was retiring from i think does show Villeneuve was still performing at a, at a high level which i know you'll love to love to hear but as we've said in bring back v10s a number of times before Villeneuve in this period was a very very good formula 1 driver i think that's often forgotten with the way his career went and Villeneuve was kind of the one person who was making that team look look more credible and show what it was capable of doing, which, of course, is exactly what he was there to do. What BAR really needed now was a shot in the arm. What it didn't need was both of its cars destroyed in massive crashes at Eau Rouge in qualifying for the Belgian Grand Prix. Villeneuve was the first to bin it when he tried to take Eau Rouge flat back in the days when that was actually a challenge. And multiple people at the team have said this was in response to some fairly robust encouragement over the radio from his engineer, Jock Clear. In a Motorsport magazine article about this weekend, written in 2019 by Simon Aaron, Chief Mechanic Alistair Gibson said Clear asked Villeneuve if he was okay after the crash. and Villeneuve responded, yes, but the corner isn't flat. Let's quickly talk, though, about Villeneuve and Eau Rouge because he'd had a massive crash there the year before as well in his Williams. And Villeneuve has since said, Eau Rouge was always a few hundredths of a second faster to do it flat, but that's it. The gain compared to the risk wasn't worth it, which is why I call it an ego corner. He's also admitted that that crash scrambled him a bit, the 99 one, because when he got out of the car, although he wasn't hurt, he didn't know which direction to walk to get back to the pits. Sam, to hear that description of O'Rouge being an ego corner from Villeneuve all these years later, was the obsession in this era of, of taking it flat and all that egging on from Jock Clear perhaps a little reckless? Um, I think in the context of 1999, it was more, and this isn't to be flippant, it was it was quite amusing. I mean, obviously, thankfully, he didn't hurt himself, but I... I Reckless, I don't think so, because in all honesty, I, I, I did find it quite amusing and, and a bit of a throwback. But um, in, in the spirit of the way it played out, and I think knowing that their reliability was so poor, I, I wouldn't call it reckless, no. I, I think it was devil may care, it, probably a similar kind of description ultimately, but I think one of the few threads of, of, of a link to Jack's father and the dna of his family perhaps sort of played out there you know remember how unfazed he was by that awful shunt at phoenix 
1994 when I think he hit Hiro Matsushita or was it the other way around? I can't remember. It was a horrible shunt. But, you know, it wasn't just bravado is what I'm trying to say. It was something inbuilt within his within his DNA. And I find that quite fascinating, to be honest, from a from a sort of personal standpoint, an ego, as, as Jacques mentioned. In the context of 1999 and knowing they were unlikely to finish a Grand Prix, I think it was, uh, it, in a way, it was a kind of a cool throwback to to uh to that sort of era in which his father raced but you know Eau Rouge and Radion uh it was a much more fearsome prospect back then in terms of a challenge to a driver and uh, you know I'm, I'm not going to go into a detailed debate on, on recent shunts and what's happened there some of which have clearly been horrible but it, it was a different time it was a different challenge and a different prospect for a driver I think actually I wouldn't call it reckless I would call it partly partly um a spirited effort and partly just the team knowing that actually you know if they can if they can actually vault two rows up the grid then yeah, that is probably the maximum they could do in the context of the reliability of their hardware another thing senior members of the team have said um since this weekend is that later in the session many of them were confused including Pollock when it appeared on uh, the TV feed was showing a replay of Villeneuve's crash, only for them to realise then that it was Zonta having an even bigger accident at the same corner. Before we get into that a bit more, let's quickly bust a myth, uh, because it's long been thought that Villeneuve and Zonta had a bet with each other to take O'Rouge flat, and that Zonta still did it, even after seeing Villeneuve's crash. But on that F1 On The Edge podcast about this weekend, which I'd urge everyone to go and listen to on Spotify, Villeneuve said it wasn't a challenge between the two of us because I had already done it. And I think he meant in previous years. Maybe there was some fun in poking Ricardo, but there was no bet. Zonta's comments from the time appeared to back this up because he said, I was shaking my head when I saw Jack's accident and thinking he must be mad to try to go through there flat out. I decided to take a careful approach on my next run, but the moment I turned into the right-hander, I lost the rear of the car. I don't think anything broke, but I don't think I made a mistake. In the motorsport article in 2019, team manager Robert Singh said, I think Ricardo was trying so hard to avoid what happened to Jacques, he just glanced the curb on the way in. So Sam, when you saw Zonta destroy his car as well, what were you thinking at that point? Were, were, were you still amused by this or were you starting to feel sympathy for the team? Well, from the perspective of the people who had to pick up the pieces, yes, the mechanics will have had a few all-nighters that weekend for sure. And, and, and that's a tough prospect on a race weekend for anyone. But, I mean, I don't think ultimately you can blame the drivers for for pushing, um, can you, to that extent. I, I was there that weekend, actually, with my dad. And although we were watching from the entry to Pouan, um, the wrecks came past us as they turned them back to the paddock. And uh, in the days before instant communications, you know, we didn't know if the drivers had escaped. And when you looked at Zonta's car in particular, you know, you feared that he'd been hurt again. Thankfully, he wasn't. And, and from, a, I, I suppose, a sympathy perspective, it was quite hard to garner much, to be honest. This was a well-funded team. Uh, it wasn't as if any anything had broken on the cars. It was a human error or rather human overindulgence, whatever you'd like to call it. And personally, I find it hard to criticise that for the drivers. But at the same time, um, also, you know, hard to sympathise with it. I think it, it was just kind of what it, it, it was what it was. It, it was it was of the moment. And um, 
you know, ultimately from a spectator on that day, it was the most exciting part of the weekend because the race was pretty dreary, actually, despite DC's best attempts to uh, wipe out Hacking and at Las Horse. Yeah, that's a story for another time. VAR had a huge job on its hands then to have any chance of getting two cars into the race the following day. Its test team was in the process of setting off for a test at Monza that was going to happen the following week. And those trucks were redirected to drop the cars off at Spa so they could be converted from test to race spec for the Sunday. The poor BAR mechanics had already done an all-nighter the night before as a suspension failure for Villeneuve meant new wishbones were flown in from the factory using Jack's private jet to be put on the cars for Saturday. But now the mechanics had an even bigger job on their hands. By 2am, the existing spare car had been prepared to be Villeneuve's race car. And by 5am, the two Monza test cars were ready to go as Zonta's race car and the new spare. Chief mechanic Alistair Gibson told Motorsport that when the team pushed the new cars down the pit lane to be scrutineered on Sunday morning, they received a round of applause from the other teams. Uh, Ron Meadows said, we became racers that day. That was when people took us seriously. And Robert Singh said on the uh, F1 on the Edge podcast, that weekend made BAR change from being a bit of a laughing stock and a paddock joke to being taken a little more seriously. We earned some respect at long last from the other teams. Ed, do you think with all that BAR had been through by this point, had they had they finally earned some of that respect? Was this perhaps the ultimate way to pay your dues in F1? It's certainly a way to do it. I'm not sure it's the ultimate way to do it. Getting a few <laughs> wins or even some points is probably the ideal way. But it certainly showed that the race team on the ground was working hard and earned BAR plenty of mechanics union credibility, should we, uh, should we call it. But at the same time, having both drivers having enormous shunts in the same place isn't a great look. But what it does show is that this is a, a team of racers in terms of that achieving the impossible element. Get, you know, get your sleeves rolled up, get your hands dirty, do the work, get the cars out, because that's what it's all about. But uh, that wasn't where the problem was, really, fundamentally, for this team. It was all the uh, politics and other machinations. So... It certainly created credibility for for that group, the sort of race team. But I, I'm not sure it changed the perception of the uh, of the upper echelon, should we say, of, of the organisation. And I should say one of the uh, one of the quotes from Ron Meadows that isn't in our script. Uh, there was there was a nice piece where he said um, that spirit is still the same uh, today at Mercedes as it was then. And then in a massive understatement, he said we're just a little bit more competitive. For what it's worth, uh, Villeneuve got his first finish of the year this weekend, of all weekends, although he trundled home only ahead of Mark Genet's Minardi after a one-stop strategy failed to pay off. And there were suggestions that the team did a one-stop did one stop per car instead of two to give the exhausted mechanics less to do. Of course, this being BAR, there was another story bubbling away in the background this weekend when Bernie Ecclestone was photographed holding what appeared to be a livery mock-up of a 2000 BAR. The car was pretty much as it would end up looking in 2000 in all white, but with big 555 logos in all the prominent places rather than the Lucky Strike logos the team ended up running. It also featured Motorola and Beck's logos, neither of which ended up on the car. The reason this design basically looked like the cars did in 2000, just with different logos, was because it later emerged that BAR's plan was to run two cars in the same white livery, but with different tobacco logos as the main sponsor on each car. This was an attempt to satisfy F1's rule 
that the cars have to look substantially the same, but it was rejected. So Ed, BAR couldn't resist, basically. They had to go back to the well of trying to get two, um, two big tobacco lead sponsors on two different cars. But was this, was this more subtle attempt with the white car carrying different logos? Was it clever or should BAR have known better than to try this again? Yeah, they probably should have uh, should have already learned their lesson. Again, it comes down to being the way you did it. But at least it's clear that they were working with with Bernie Eccleston to to try and make it uh, try and make it work. But obviously, it's it's all about trying to drive the commercial value of the team and shore it up, etc. Because obviously, when you've got uh, a big company own it, that's core business is not motorsport. You always want to do everything you can to to shore it up. But certainly. They obviously accepted they're never going to go down the two livery route. But again, coming back to this talk about a company with multiple brands, they're at least trying to find a way to rotate through some of those brands or be region specific in what they were doing, which I think makes sense. And as I said earlier, I don't actually think it's necessarily a bad thing for F1 to allow a little bit of that. But that's a that's a bit of a different uh, debate. Yeah, I'd not seen this this mock up before, and I I think liveries being the same but just slightly different logos on them not not the worst idea in the world but f1 i don't think at this point was was uh of the mind to kind of negotiate and give bar a bit of space we haven't spoken too much about zonta in this episode certainly not unless he was having massive shunts um but he was in the news later in the year at the nurburgring when he was re-signed for 2000 but it emerged that uh, this was after a messy negotiation with pollock pollock wanted to renew Zonta's contract on new terms, which Zonta's manager refused to accept. So when they reached a deadlock, Zonta's manager tried to set up a press conference and make Pollock attend to explain why Zonta was leaving the team. Obviously, that press conference didn't happen, as hilarious as it would have been. And Pollock explained that it was simply a renegotiation because he didn't want to take up the option in Zonta's contract as it stood. And he said both sides in the end were happy to renegotiate. Sam, what did you make of Zonta as the number two at BAR for its first two seasons? Was was he the right sort of driver for that seat or did the team need someone more experienced alongside Villeneuve while it was finding its way? No, I think he was a good option actually for BAR. He was an F3000 champion in 97. He had a year of experience with a major manufacturer with Mercedes in FIA GT in 98 when he was champion with Klaus Ludwig. So he had a strong pedigree. Remember, he beat the likes of Juan Pablo Montoya, Tom Christensen and Christian Horner <coughs> in Formula 3000. So he was plainly very good and he was he was still only 23 years of age. So... A rookie in a rookie team, though, is a very different prospect entirely. And I and I think it was clear as the season went on that, that Zonta was was struggling to find his feet in that environment. He was a long way off Villeneuve for most of the season. And it was clear from the outset that he, he would have little say in anything really strategic going on in the team. So, But then again, I guess he wasn't expecting anything other than that in, in some senses. So just learning the ropes... But you know, boy, those those ropes were tough and knotty at times, to say the least. Literally a, a, a bruising year two for him. So it wasn't the ideal way to make your Grand Prix debut, but at least it it toughened him up for for two thousand. And 
you know, as for someone else, they could have chosen, I suppose, Sarlo comes to mind, doesn't he? You know, he was free. I think Josvich Stappen could have been a possibility, um, who could have been around at the, the end of 98, potentially, before his Arrows adventures. But I, I don't think it would have made a massive amount of difference with the way that BAR went about its uh, its initial season in Formula 1. You wouldn't think things could get any worse for BAR at this stage of the year, but then they did. Villeneuve retired from fifth place late on in the chaotic European Grand Prix at the Nürburgring, and Marc Genet's sixth place for Minardi dropped BAR to 11th and last in the Constructors' Championship. There was more talk of pressure on Pollock, but he said this is talk within the paddock, not within the team. He also said if things are not working, the first guy to offer his resignation should be the guy at the top. If I did not make this work and turn the business around, then I could understand why people would say I should resign. But things are a lot better than people say. We'll get there. Villeneuve laughed off suggestions that Pollock should leave and added, if Craig leaves, I go with him. Meanwhile, in October, 15% shareholder Jerry Forsyth, a cart team owner in America, decided to speak out about the performance of BAR. Forsyth said, this was a learning year. In retrospect, it's easy to say we should have waited a year and tested and made sure of ourselves on the circuit. It wasn't our intention to embarrass ourselves, although that has taken place. But he also called Honda's faith in the team the light at the end of the tunnel. So Ed, there's quite a lot going on there. What did you make of all that? Is this just a sign of more dysfunction or did Forsyth perhaps deliver a, a dose of some reality and honesty that the team had maybe been missing? Well, it certainly does reflect a certain amount of misalignment, should we say, among the, the ownership. But it was a helpful injection reality. But I think the expectation management horse had bolted so long ago, it was, uh, it was too late. It's not necessarily even about changing your expectations and not coming in until a bit later. The whole tone of the project was triumphant before the fact. And that has an impact on morale, on the way things done, the politics in the team, the culture. So the die had been cast long ago. As has been mentioned, this team is now Mercedes, so there are some of the ingredients there, but it did lack that culture that we talk about with Mercedes now that works so well. This attitude that will turn up as newcomers and be hugely successful totally changed the public narrative and the outlook of the team, and, and that was locked by, by this stage. And these things do make a difference because without that, bombast, that, without that bombast and wild predictions, you can look at BAR in 99 and say... It's pretty good there for a new team, but they they cut that avenue off for them and that created all sorts of problems, not just in perception. Perception you can live with, but inside the team, it did have a tangible effect. Pollock's reaction to BAR falling to last in the championship was to promise every member of the team a £1,000 bonus if it could score a point before the end of the year. The motivation for this was that a top 10 finish in the Constructors' Championship would entitle BAR to a bigger payout of prize money and travel funding from F1, which Pollock said could be worth $10 million to the team. Ron Meadows recalled this story as well on Beyond the Grid um, about Team Brackley's journey from BAR to Mercedes. He said they might as well have promised us all $10 million because that car didn't ever look like it was going to score a point. Um, Ed, I think we've... Um, We've picked apart a lot of the things that management and particularly Pollock uh, did during this year. What do you think of uh, this gesture from Craig to uh, to the rest of the team members? 
Well, the problem isn't team personnel not being incentivized or, or working too hard, is it? <laughs> it's a rather futile gesture, and I doubt it made a difference. People in F1 teams are generally a very hard-working bunch, and I would have personally found that offer a little bit insulting. Although, like everyone else, I'd definitely have taken the extra grand in my back pocket if it was uh, if if it was there. I think it just shows how far the team had fallen, and it's just a metaphor, isn't it? <laughs> They couldn't buy a point. That's that's what it's almost uh, showing you. It's fair to say that some of the things Pollock said, both in public and private, were seen as slightly odd by members of the team. Let's put it that way. And it, and it means you kind of look upwards. And I think if if there were problems outside of my control, if I'm a race engineer, you know, doing my job, getting the most out of the car, it's not my fault if the car's massively reliable. And it's not about passing the blame around, but there were fundamental problems with the team that we've talked about that were stopping it scoring points. And... I just think there's this sort of unstated, oh, if you try just 10% harder, we'll score points. It's not going to stop the engine shaking the car to pieces, is it? So what he needed to do was offer Flavio Briatore an extra grand to make the engine less rattly. Adrian Reynard made a rare appearance at the final race of the year in Japan, where both BARs finished outside the points. So uh, the humiliation was complete and BAR finished bottom of the table. But the big story from this weekend was that Reynard was reported to be trying to oust Pollock from the team. Reynard didn't address those rumours directly, but he did say, I wouldn't consider replacing Craig unless the shareholders could find a better person to do the job. I would only consider taking over if I thought I could do a better job than is being done at the moment. I've had 25 years experience in running winning cars at the forefront of motor racing, and I have found it difficult to receive directions from those I think are less experienced. Craig has worked hard and tried his best. There are lots of aspects of the team that have made mistakes and have not done a particularly good job this year, including my area. Pollock said his role as chairman was as sound and solid as it was at the start of the season, while Villeneuve said there was political pushing and shoving going on, and he added that without Pollock, the team would have collapsed even before the first race. BAT weren't particularly impressed with all of this going on. With Tom Moser, who we mentioned earlier, saying it was a management issue that needs to be resolved between BAR management and that BAT board members would not want to get involved in that sort of thing. By the end of the year in December, a restructuring was announced with BAT's chief shareholder, Don Brown, becoming BAR chairman and Pollock and Reynard were both given managing director status. Reynard would be responsible for all technical aspects of the team, while Pollock was responsible for the management and running the business side. So let's hear one last time from Reynard's interview with Sam again, as Adrian's got some very interesting insight into how Pollock went from being chairman to his new managing director role. Did we do badly? Yes, we could have done better. I could have probably had my heart in it a bit more when things were going badly. But uh, Craig was the MD. He had appointed himself MD. He had a clause in his working contract that he, as a shareholder in BAR, was able to appoint the MD. So after BAT did find him out and asked for him to resign, he didn't. Then they forced him, then they fired him, and he reappointed himself. So, you know... For someone to put that in their contract so early on, he must have doubted his own ability a little bit. Um, I'm probably not as political as I 
ought to be to be in that arena. I mean, I'm just a technical guy, really. And I didn't pay attention too much. I didn't manage upwards very well. That is the BAT board and possibly the FIM. I wasn't that motivated to to get into all the politics. So, you know, I, I did find it a bit difficult, put it that way. But um, I enjoyed it. I I was only allowed by Craig to go to a couple of races because he restricted my Foca Pass, would you believe? That was just one of the things that I had to face because he was the MD, he controlled the tickets. But uh, But that's the sort of restrictions that I was under and the limitations I was under. Sam, that, that interview that we've heard bits from with Adrian was brilliant. And we'll, we'll put the full thing in our uh, members club feed after the series has finished. Reynard wouldn't last too much longer at BAR. And it was, was only another couple of years before Pollock was ousted properly and David Richards came in, which interestingly was already being rumoured in late 99. I think it's fair to say that Pollock got a reasonable shot at running this team. But do you think... Reynard deserved a chance to have more influence to do things his way at some point? I think, yes, I think he he, he probably did. Um, he'd obviously been a very successful constructor and designer and, and a racer himself at, at the start of his career. He first worked in Formula One back in, I think, 1980, running a, a Ram Williams for Rupert Keegan. So, you know, he had, he had come up with some experience in Formula One. He was part of the March... Uh, F1 team in 1982 as well. But once he'd built up Reynard and made a, a huge success of Reynard and evidenced uh, the winning designs in Formula 3, Formula 3000, IndyCar and many other categories, you'd have to say that, yeah, I think um, I think he, w- he should have done, but the influence is the key word there, isn't it? Influencing things. And, and obviously that was stymied to a great extent in what we've discussed at BAR. If, if the... If the climate would have been right and the circumstances right, I've no doubt that that Adrian Reynard and Rick Gorn and Malcolm Ursler and, and some of the other constituent parts of Reynard Racing Cars would have made a terrific Formula One team. Um, it almost happened, as Ed described earlier, and and I think it probably should have happened. You know, Lola had several uh, attempts at Formula One, whether it be by themselves or with manufacturers like Honda or with privateer teams like LaRousse and, um, uh, and Scuderia Italia. Uh, but I think Reynard could actually have gone one step above that. Um, but it wasn't to be. You know, motor racing is a is a fickle and a funny business. And I think if circumstances had been a different, there is there is no doubt to me that uh, uh, Reynard would have made a very good fist of, of, of racing and, and, and winning potentially in Formula One. So let's wrap this monster of an episode up by just reflecting on BAR's dreadful first season. Villeneuve summed it up pretty well in Japan at the time, saying the car was born weak, and once it's a major problem, it's very difficult to fix it. Our reliability has been pathetic this year, and that has held us back. We were almost competitive earlier in the season, but we were not putting any miles in testing because the car kept breaking down. Pollock said we started the season with enormous optimism. We promised Jack the equipment to get the job done, and we didn't deliver. It's something you wouldn't want to put anybody through again. Andrew Shovlin, another one of the Brackley boys who is still at Mercedes today, told the Beyond the Grid podcast, it was one of those seasons that you put into the character building category. 
uh, getting that thing to finish a race, basically you had to assemble an entire car's worth of brand new parts and then just cross your fingers. We'll give the last word to Villeneuve. Well, really, Ed and Sam will get the last word, but the last word in our, in our script can come from Villeneuve. And these are some of the quotes he has given in recent years when reflecting on BAR in the various interviews we've referenced through this episode. He said, it wasn't too ambitious. Look at what we managed to build in a short time. Not many people have done that. I don't regret it because how many F1 drivers have built their own teams? When you look at that first season, the team kept getting P8s, which today would have been amazing, points in the first season. But back then, it was, what a bunch of losers. Look, they're only eighth. Times have changed in terms of how good you need to be to be respected. So guys, uh, you can both have a swing at this this last question. Ed, we'll come to you first. How would you sum up BAR 1999 then? Would we say arrogant, naive? misguided, unlucky, unprepared, out of their depth? Where where do you want to go with this? Yeah, arrogant, yeah, naive, yeah, misguided, partly unlucky. Sometimes you make, you make your own luck, don't you? Out of their depth, I don't think fundamentally so because all the names involved were, were credible. But I think it's just, to take that out of their depth <laughs> phrase, they jumped straight in at the deep end with heavy weights of expectation that they had tied around their own ankles. You can complain about people not being realistic, but they created that. So that's one thing that I think shows shows a problem. All the ingredients were there, the resources. Budget is a prerequisite of success, not a guarantee of it. But the patience wasn't there, the culture wasn't there, and, and that culture is often a, a top-down thing. Perhaps the best word to sum it up is impatient, because that was what gave rise to the political problems that, that destabilised the team. If there'd just been a more realistic timeline for everything... They could have gone through the the tough first year, kept building up, and we wouldn't have seen this kind of constant machinations with the the ownership and the, the people at the top level. And that continued for for quite a long time. Even at the points where the team got good, it was it was a little bit short lived because there was always this ebb and flow with everything. And and the reason that culture is so important that comes down from the top, and the culture is what if you want to consider all the bits you throw into the pot to make your your race team. Think of it as a cake. I like cake metaphors. They had all the right ingredients, but they weren't cooking it right. Let's put it that way. The culture, the culture is the way you, the way you cook the team and bind it together, and, and that just wasn't quite there. And all the things we talk about, we've talked about on this podcast, reflect that problem. So I, I quite like impatience. What about you, Sam? Where would you, where would you go with trying to sum up the madness of what we've just been discussing? I think actually the the tide of time has probably been quite kind to to it. I think there was a, there was an initial reaction to what they were trying to achieve, and as as Ed rightly says, culture was crucial, and we we touched on it earlier, didn't we, with some of the German OEMs and how they go about their racing and do it in a sort of a humble fashion. You know, this this was no as as JV alluded to, um, very few drivers have created something. Uh, good, you know, Jack Brabham obviously is is the one that stands out that did do, um, but for every Jack Brabham, there are three or four Copasukas or Embassy Hills, aren't there? So, actually, they built something strong. It went through different iterations, but is essentially still standing in in terms of its foundations today. So, uh, yeah, I think I think the 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 way that they went about it could have been um, diluted slightly in terms of the 
to use Ed's word, bomb bombast that we've seen. But I think what they did is note was noteworthy. It was brave, certainly, um, and, and ultimately, you know, it was it wasn't a complete disaster. They were they were competitive in a in a few of their seasons after that initial tough one in ninety nine. So you know, Jordan had a terrific season in ninety one, but a disaster in ninety two. Stewart were great in ninety seven, their first season, and and shoddy in ninety eight. Um, there are other examples. It's just the way it goes. But I think actually as time dissipates people will look back on that season with kinder eyes than they did uh in uh immediately after that period and just to stress those successful new teams in the years before that sam mentioned bar were way faster than jordan were in 91 they were way faster than sauber were in 93 fractionally faster but ultimately about the same as stewart were in 97 so that shows how those expectations distort the view of it they were quick for a new team. The trouble was they didn't seem to want to be willing to be a new team for a year or two to get started. And that was what changed the whole narrative. And I think the final point has to be, quite simply, uh, Jacques Villeneuve is responsible for all of the success of the Mercedes F1 team. And I have to say, I never thought I'd devote so much time and effort to revisiting the worst season of Villeneuve's career. I'm absolutely exhausted um so that's the end of our regular episodes for this series but we've still got the ask us anything finales to come by the time you hear this we'll have started recording those already so there's no more time to get your questions in but we still love hearing from you with the hashtag bring back v10s on twitter and you can leave us a five-star podcast review anytime if you've enjoyed the series if you want to get early access to our remaining episodes and listen to the entire series ad free check out the race members club by going to the hyphen race forward slash members club and as i mentioned earlier once the series has finished we'll be releasing some bonus episodes and interviews in that feed including the uncut version of sam's interview with adrian reynard that you've heard snippets from today so all that's left for series four is to hand the control over to our audience and uh, to ask the questions and we'll be answering some brilliant ones that have come in they're always they're always fantastically varied and um, we're all looking forward to getting stuck into those uh, and being guided by you. As for BAR 1999, let's never speak of it again. <laughs>